0: hello. This is Dr. Gypsy and I'm back with the fifth episode of our podcast Gloves Off. I'm going to call this episode the devil's advocate because I'm really not sure how many people are going to agree with what we have to say but here goes anyway. In this episode I'm in conversation with my friend and colleague Dr. Harshit who is an emergency medicine physician and works in one of the major departments of emergency medicine in our country in India. I hope you don't think it's a little long but I felt like everything that was in it was extremely important to us and we definitely needed to have a conversation. Dr. Harshad and I are going to talk about physician accountability in the healthcare system in India, especially focusing on what's happening during this pandemic. I know that there's going to be a lot of things that some people don't agree with and I truly welcome your point of view. I'd really like to hear from you because I feel like unless we look at this issue from a well-rounded perspective, we're not going to be able to bring about true change. Try not to beat us up. Here goes. So Dr. Harshit, I know that we want to talk about uh, the absence of accountability of healthcare workers in the system. Uh, Often patients that come to us, come to us with time sensitive conditions and their life would turn out so much better if certain small but essential interventions were made when they had gone to the first hospital itself. And these hospitals usually have the facilities available to do those small primary interventions, right? So have have you also faced that a lot uh, when you're on the floor?
1: So I've worked in three different ERs and I've seen that this is a problem in every emergency department. This is not necessarily a problem that we see only in our institute, only in your city. I know that this is a problem in every emergency department that is there. However, before I start talking about it itself, I will give a disclaimer that this is not a generalized statement. I'm not saying that everyone is doing this. There are some very small centers, very small clinics in very remote areas which are doing a very good job to the best of their abilities. Yeah. The, the point that you were making about, we get a lot of patients who are referred from other center and that center would not have maybe treated the patient right. I'm, I don't want to tackle the issue at an individualistic level that comes down to how, which doctor is there, which uh, the doctor, how much knowledge does he have about emergency management and everything and what all he has available at that center obviously is very individualistic. I'm talking about everyone trying to give their best. I know it's a very idealistic statement. But something as basic as the 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 biggest example I'd like to give is the Institute that we work in, we, yeah. uh, when we are referring a patient, because we don't have an ICU bed, or we don't have a speciality, we don't just send the patient out, right? Yeah, we Uh, get the medical social worker involved who helps us find another bed in another hospital. We call up that hospital. We discuss about that patient with that doctor, about what the patient presented with, what are we thinking, what did we treat, and what should be probably the next step in the treatment. And then help the patient arrange an ambulance and then send them out to that hospital, right? So there's a proper chain of events that happens that the the patient is taken care of. Yeah. I'm, uh, the, the problem that, that we get with the patients that we receive is there's not a proper chain. Once the hospital takes the patient in, does their part of the treatment, probably tries to do their best. I'm not questioning that. But once the patient has been sent out, there's no accountability. It is out of, my, uh, out of sight, out of mind kind of a situation. And this is the biggest example I can give you. This has always been an issue. If you look at the last 50 years, look at any industry every industry has had has had some sort of accountability medical system has been let go different hospitals can charge whatever they want how many hospitals are following what protocols are not very strict our pre hospital care is absolute to be very honest non existent yes there is a 108 ambulance and everything but who's in that ambulance it's a driver uh, if it's not a medical professional person who's bringing the patient to you And we know all of those fallbacks. It has become even more obvious during this pandemic because of not having any accountability, a patient who has breathlessness gets sent to one hospital and that hospital will say that, you know what, we are not taking any breathlessness patients because we don't have any isolation wards. Even though the government has said that every hospital has to have isolation wards available, which they have actually started saying from January end, the lockdown happened in March end. Our cases started in March beginning. Even after having so much time, a lot of hospitals have not prepared isolation beds. So if they get a breathless patient, they will not take the patient inside and they will say go to the next hospital. We have had patients in the last two months who have had a heart attack. And even the heart attack patients can get breathless. And they go to at least four or five hospitals and then end up to us. By that time, it's either too late already the patient is already dead or the patient is at the brink of it. And you know that these are time-sensitive issues, which in a city like Bangalore where I'm practicing is very easily available. It is just that people are not stepping up to the plate when we really need them to be.
0: But why do you think they are not stepping up? I know that this problem existed before the pandemic as well, but I also know that it's, like you said, magnified. Is is it fear that's preventing them from taking patients into the hospital or what is it?
1: I'd say it is multifactorial. Obviously, I can be sitting on my high chair and, and doing this podcast with you because I have a boss who's willing to do these things. I have an administration backing me up who's willing to do these things. That might not be the case for everybody. It can be an individual fear. It could be that the administration is not backing you up. You just don't have the facilities. You just don't have the ability to be able to manage all this. But to that, I would say that why are we not trying to find a work around this? This is where the government should get involved and do something about it in the sense of at least the collateral damage to the non-COVID patient should not be happening. I'll give you an example. We had a patient who had a road traffic accident, a 23-year-old boy. He went to one hospital, did not get any treatment, went to another hospital where an x-ray was done. So he has something called a hollow viscous perforation in in the abdomen, uh, which requires emergent surgery. And usually a 23-year-old from a road traffic accident having a hollow viscous perforation is a good patient to survive when it's done at the right time. Again, time sensitive. This patient went to six hospitals and then ended up to us, which was the seventh. He was already dead when he came to us. We tried our best. He came back. We did the surgery, but he he still didn't survive because it was too late by then. 12 hours later, he collapsed The, the six hospitals that he went to, two of them were teaching hospitals. The family was told that we don't have a surgeon, which is unheard of. A teaching hospital will have a general surgeon, but they were told that we don't have a general surgeon and please go somewhere else. If anything, they could have done at least, if they actually do not have a surgeon, they could have held the patient, stabilized him, call up and find out where there is a surgeon rather than the patient themselves going door to door asking, do you have a surgeon? They don't have those connections and the abilities. The hospitals do. Every hospital knows someone else in another hospital. You can call up, find out and rather than the patient going to six different places, you can send them to that particular institute. It will be just much faster to every patient that comes to you. You're the caregiver. Today's situation is genuinely the way I feel is if you're a non-medical person, if you don't have a doctor in the family, or if you don't know a doctor personally, you're pretty screwed. Tough.
0: Yeah, it's tough. It, it must be really frustrating to have a patient who can otherwise survive. It, mm-hmm. You know, it's a small intervention. You give him fluids, you mm-hmm. give him blood, just make a call, right? It's just a call that just they make. A phone. make. Yeah. And often uh, it's, it's not very difficult uh, and not mm-hmm. very time consuming. I know to write... A small summary of just what has been given in mm-hmm. your institute, so that the next institute knows what has already occurred, and then you know they know mm-hmm. the next step that has to happen. Mm-hmm. Do you think does it really affect your treatment if you if you have a note from another hospital saying this is what we've done? Absolutely, yeah,
1: absolutely. Of course, it uh, helps because then I know at what stage the patient is at right now. This has already been tried, so maybe I need to try something else. It's it is just about like you said, you just pick up the phone, find a bed, and move the patient. And in today's day and age where I have at least 20 WhatsApp groups on my phone with doctors in it. 10 of them within Bangalore, within Karnataka. You cannot tell me that there's no way to find out bed for a patient and send them. Yeah, I know. I think most of us do
0: have connections. To say something positive here, it has increased in the last five years. Like five years ago, people were not asking each other. Now we do get messages saying who's on duty, whom can we call, so I think it's definitely. getting better, but it's not even remotely where it should be. The number definitely. of hospitals that are practicing this referral protocol, you know, this thing of mm-hmm. just calling up, making sure there's a bed and writing mm-hmm. a letter just to document mm-hmm. what they've done is mm-hmm. definitely not enough. That. But mm-hmm. why do you think this trauma patient, to go back to this patient, mm-hmm. trauma patient, the trauma patient mm-hmm. has nothing to do with COVID. So why was he sent away and I want to know why teaching hospital would send away a trauma patient.
1: So there's no definite way for me to prove this to you. Every patient that comes to me, I've I've actually been actively talking to them and documenting these things down as to which hospital you went to, what was told to you. There are two main problems, right? One is that most hospitals are working at lesser capacity, one because they don't want obviously to put their staff at risk, which makes sense. One week, this this doctor will be on, this doctor will be off for a week at a time uh, to to minimize exposure to a possible coronavirus outbreak, which is understandable, but it can be done right. There are enough human resources in most teaching hospitals, at least to be able to divide this into two groups. And if nothing else, we have heard stories from countries where doctors have been working for hours together, uh, have done extra shifts because it's a special scenario. I'm okay. saying if you're not going to step up now, when are you going to step up? Yes, it is a tough life being a doc. You knew that when you joined the profession. As an emergency physician, I can't say that I will not do night shifts. That is a part of a job of emergency medicine. If I did not want to do night shifts, I should have taken maybe say dermatology or something, which does not have night shifts. Yeah. So, so why are you backing out now? So they, it should be planned better as to how many people are there in the hospital, how many people aren't, which is not being done at most hospitals. And the second problem is a more of a administrative government level issue where I'll tell you in Bangalore what is happening is all the government hospitals have been turned into coronavirus center. I don't know if that's the case with all other states, but that's what's happening in Karnataka, yeah. is that all government hospitals have been told mm. that you are a coronavirus response hospital. Yeah. What that means is that in case of a massive outbreak, all the patients will be shifted to you. Once you are filled, we will look at other options. Right now in Karnataka, the situations are not that bad. In the last three days, the numbers have started to increase, I know, but it's right now it's not that bad. But since this started two months ago, these hospitals have taken this as a reason to say that, okay, let's empty our hospital. So they've sent out all their patients and set up isolation wards and isolation areas and screening clinic and everything. And they're saying now on, because the government has told us, we'll take only coronavirus patients. If that's the case, a poor patient who cannot pay a private hospital charge for an emergency situation, where is that patient supposed to go? We've had a lot of patients who required immediate surgery come to us. And even though the Institute that I work in, the charges are nominal relative to other corporate uh, institutes. Yeah. They can't even afford that. They will be like, we'll take them to a government hospital. And I I, I keep counselling them saying, I know for a fact that every government hospital is a coronavirus response hospital, so they will not take you in. You don't have any other option. To which they will say, it's okay. It's, I've had a mother say uh, that uh, she will take her 28-year-old to a government hospital. And if they don't take in, then screw it, I'll take her home, let her die. Because I don't have the money. I, there's nothing I can do about it. You are best in that case, but there's only so much what we can, can do him? as individuals. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there seems to be two, three issues. One thing is that I think it's common sense, but I don't know if it's occurring to everybody, the way people are behaving, that just because Mm -hmm. coronavirus can kill you, it doesn't mean that Mm -hmm. other things cannot also kill you. So this seems to be a recurring theme in a lot of ways. For example, people are on the roads in Maharashtra. They are wearing Mm. masks, but they refuse to wear helmet. (laughs) So just because you can get killed by coronavirus doesn't mean that you can't also be killed by a head injury. So that's one thing. The other thing is the more people I talk to doctors, the more I realize Mm -hmm. that it's almost like the pandemic has become an excuse to be able to not Mm -hmm. work as much as before. I, I don't want to generalize. Like you said, I don't want to talk about it's not all residents, but Pretty much everybody I've spoken to who is working with any residents under them are saying Mm -hmm. that everybody is trying to find a way to use this to not come Mm -hmm. to work. Now that's Mm -hmm. tough, especially if the hospital authority doesn't give you a structured protocol and say if there are five Mm -hmm. people in the department of let's say nephrology or endocrinology. Obviously, all of Mm -hmm. you don't need to come, but somebody definitely Mm -hmm. needs to be on call. So Mm -hmm. so what's happening here is in the hospital that my mom works in, the Mm -hmm. authorities have completely ignored the pandemic. It's not a frontline COVID center. They have a small ward, but most cases, like you said, are being referred to government centers. But the doctors are being put on duty in the COVID ward. Now the doctors are petrified. I know another person Mm. who he's having to do double the number of days of Corona duty because his co-PG is son of head of the car. So he's just not getting the COVID duty. Mm -hmm. Now the thing is, why is this pandemic being used as a loophole? to be able to take more mm. leave. So what mm-hmm. I was trying to say was that the hospital in which my mother works has not mm-hmm. sent out any guidelines to say fewer people should come to work to reduce risks. And by fewer mm-hmm. people, we mean exactly so many people. So if you give a guideline mm-hmm. saying in the Department of Surgery, there are nine PG's of which one PG must be on call every day. Mm-hmm. Right. Please send us a rota of which person is posted right. on which day. So th- right. that way everything gets streamlined. Now, if you don't right. send out any guidelines... Then each department is making its own. So some like adult nephrology is saying, sorry, we want everybody to come to work. And pediatric right, nephrology right. is saying, we don't all need to come to work. One person can come at one mm. time. Then the residents mm-hmm. are saying, but in that department, they are saying, we don't need to come to work at all. So why do we need to? So there's uh-huh. a lot of confusion all around.
1: Right. What you're saying is absolutely right. That the administration has to step in and get people in line and at the same time, take care of them which is what has been missing in the Indian scenario from a very long time, which is why I want to also raise a point that see this again, I want to repeat that this is not a generalized statement. I know a lot of doctors are doing an excellent job trying to cover for coronavirus and also for not coronavirus patients, emergencies and everyone, people are going out of their way and doing duties and everything. I completely understand that. But what I'm trying to say is, is that even after all of that, if these things are still happening then we are obviously still not doing the right thing i mean you can bank thalis on in your balconies and you know light diyas for healthcare workers but i'm not saying go beat them up for uh, because of this conversation that you and i are having i'm saying that do the middle ground ask the right questions to your hospitals how many ventilators do you actually have uh, have transparency uh, in terms of if my patient is not going to be admitted to this hospital give me a genuine reason why and tell me where to go exactly And make sure that you've spoken to that person. At least those basic three steps of ask the right questions and hold yourself accountable and have some transparency. Or else who's going to stand up for the little guy is what my worry is.
0: I I feel like to do what you are asking everybody to do, you have Mm -hmm. to really want to do the job that you are doing. And you have to realize that if you don't do it, it's Mm -hmm. unlikely anybody else is going to do it. So if you have it in your mind that this is my patient, And if I don't figure out a place for this patient to go, nobody else is going to do it. Then, I mean, the responsibility is going to shift to somebody
1: else. This is the best way I can describe the problem. I know that this is not an individual person's problem, individual healthcare worker's problem. I know it is multifaceted. It has a lot of issues that need to be started from the top level, from the government to the administration. Yeah. I understand that. But to solve the problem, I'm saying take it as an individual problem. Take it as this is my patient. I will do everything I possibly can for this patient. Somewhere in the process, if everybody does this, it will all tie up into nice net. Now mm-hmm. we know
0: that the issue is this, that patients are being shunted from door to door and they're not reaching the hospital in time. Pandemic is being used as an excuse, right? This is what we've established mm-hmm. so far. And we've also established that though it may be a systemic issue, the Mm -hmm. way to deal with it may start with each doctor trying to do its best, it's not going to be easy, they're going to have to fight the system a little bit, but as they continue to do it, it's going to get a little better in the process, right, that's what we've said. I want to know, so let's say practically what what I could do, let's say I'm working in an emergency of a small hospital Mm that's on the side of a highway, you know, all these smaller institutions Mm -hmm. that are there, not necessarily a big teaching hospital. I have been issued orders that anybody who comes with what looks like Corona, which is a very broad Mm -hmm. and generalized statement to make, Uh, don't Mm -hmm. take them in because we are not equipped. Mm -hmm. So I get such a patient and I feel that this patient is going to crash if Mm -hmm. I don't do something. So Mm -hmm. now... What should be my next step? What do you think we should do? I go to the ambulance. I've taken a basic history and done a simple exam. And I feel that this Mm -hmm. patient has breathless, but is likely to have cardiac failure. And if I don't treat the patient now, this patient is Mm -hmm. likely to not make it to the next hospital or is going to uh, be not salvageable by the time he reaches the right place. So what do I do next? What do you think I should do next?
1: The way I see it, uh, there are three things that can be done in this. All right. One, it comes down to an individual level where you genuinely, you know, take a proper history, take a proper physical examination. You know the subject well, and you arrive at a genuine diagnosis where, and you can make the difference out between a possible coronavirus or a non-coronavirus because it's not in your hand. The administration has said that they're not going to create an isolation ward, right? But what you can do as an individual is make your subject stronger. Obviously, that is not something that you can do after you're a doctor after twenty. years and all of that. I mean, you can still do it, but it's tougher. I'm saying that the teaching system will have to be better from there, from that point. So it has to, you know, simulations, more simulations, more better teaching at the teaching level itself. Mm -hmm. Second would be, there should be more systems created. Every individual has their own way of approaching things. I might be lesser worried about coronavirus because I've read so much about it and I might be a little more like, you know, I'm ready to go out there and work, but I do not necessarily have to expect that from my colleague. Yeah. If he has an infant at home or an old person at home, they are fair to be worried, you know, because yeah, they, have, they have a family that they have to go back to. You cannot trust in people individually alone because everyone does it their own way. So you create protocols and you create algorithms and in which these errors are minimized. Yeah. So what we have done in our hospital is that we've created a separate respiratory ER. Okay. The issue we were having earlier is that if a patient comes into the emergency and it turns out to be a possible suspect, Corona, then for two days till that patient's report comes, every doctor who dealt with that patient is sent home. Yeah. Saying don't come out for two days till the report comes. If it comes positive, you go to quarantine. If it comes negative, you come back to work. Yeah. To deal with that individual issue as to a do- the doctor on the floor should be able to make that call. We said every patient who has breathlessness without thinking just shift them to the respiratory ER because over there, there are lesser people. We are all wearing PPEs. So it is easier to be able to manage these patients because we cannot teach every doctor individually as to which patients you should take in, which patients you should send to the respiratory ER. We just made a blanket rule saying that every breathless patient you shift there. So there have to be systems created and protocols in place, which take away the human error. The third thing that I want to say is that the scenario that you just told me should not happen itself. In terms of pre-hospital, what I'm asking for having accountability and transparency at an individual level in the healthcare system is impossible. I know that I'm being very idealistic, but at least the things which can be easily achieved, which we know other countries have achieved, we should at least attempt. And pre-hospital is the first thing in that have a pre-hospital system wherein the ambulance that goes has a trained professional in it. There's some sort of protocol as to the ambulance takes a patient where. So if a patient has breathlessness, the ambulance should not be directed to your hospital if your hospital is not not a code center. The pre-hospital system is something that can be solved and can be kept accountable. It is not unheard of. We know a lot of countries which are already doing that and it is possible to do if you're asking me where do we start solving this problem that's where we start solving
0: it i completely agree with you and i feel like the day we are able to design or even begin a good pre-hospital program we will end up saving many many more lives because all the action happens mostly those precious minutes that the patient takes to come from home but what i want to know is that see we are not there yet so if mm-hmm. in today's scenario, if I'm a guy in a local hospital that mm-hmm. receives an ambulance that has a patient with breathlessness mm-hmm. and has come to me and I'm not a COVID hospital, and I feel mm-hmm. from the training that I have that this is a patient with heart failure, here's what I would do. I would say, okay, you have heart failure, I'd like to give you some medication, but I can't take you inside. We have to be able to be ready to step out of our sure. comfort zone, yeah. So, you know, if you're not able to bring the patient inside, put the patient on BiPAP, give him some IV Lasix. I'm trying to look for a solution for non-COVID hospital doctors to not have to push their patients away. So maybe have one doctor who are responsible only for look, looking at the patients in at the least- ambulance.
1: Yeah, and at least or, or at least have your emergency department set enough that you can at least stabilize these patients and then move them to a COVID center. See, it might be a cardiac failure, but you can't say that it's not COVID. I understand true, that. For sure. But at least what you can do is if the emergency department has enough PPEs, yeah. you say take in every patient, stabilize yeah. them. If it's a breathless case, send them out. That's yeah. good enough. That's the bare minimum that you should do. But
0: then aren't you exposing the rest of the emergency and the patients to Which somebody is- with breathlessness?
1: Which is why I'm saying that if you cannot set up a whole isolation system in your hospital, you know, in the yeah. entire hospital,
0: yeah,
1: that is something that you cannot solve as an individual, no, but sure. as an emergency physician, I, ca- I think it can be done just yeah. for the emergency department at least.
0: Yeah, definitely. If you have a department of emergency and you're part of a yeah. hospital like that, then for sure, for sure you can do that. But at least right. uh, I think that one thing that we can definitely do as some, a place that is smaller and doesn't have a department of emergency, you can go to the ambulance, mm. you can start a line, you can give them some LASIKs. You can right. find right. a still call up somebody, find a hospital that is COVID and direct them right. there instead of them having to exactly. figure out their own way and go to exactly. 10 hospitals before they reach the 11th hospital where the heart failure is actually treated. And then you know, COVID right. or non-COVID is a completely separate issue.
1: Right? right while still taking care of yourself i would add yes, that of while course while still taking care that
0: should always of be primary because if you don't take care of yourself then it's unlikely you're going to be able to treat the number of patients that you really want
1: to right absolutely yeah
0: do you think a lot of this defensive medicine is occurring because of their fear of backlash malpractice suits or just Late. violence Late.
1: Lately, yes. At least for the last seven years, we've been hearing a lot about, you know, healthcare workers getting beaten up. Even in our legal system has taken steps to say that if you hit a healthcare worker, there's these many years of imprisonment, this much of fine. A lot has happened in the last seven years in our country. But every time I say this in a doctor's forum, I'm looked at with eyes that I will get beaten up by my own colleagues. But I have to say this, that if this is happening for so much, so rampantly for the last seven years, Why do you think this is happening? Because we've we've created a system which has allowed mistrust between the doctor and the patient. You're given a knife in your hand as a doctor to be able to cut a patient and that's legal. Imagine the level of trust that patient also needs to have in you. But we've created a system where there's so much mistrust, where these people don't have any uh, level of transparency or anywhere to go to remove their frustration, to find out what is actually happening in the medical system that they remove it on the first guy that they see in front of them, who turns out to be a nurse or a doctor and they beat them up. Yes, it is wrong. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm not saying the legal system is the only way to correct this. That must in fact be the last step that needs to be done to correct this. We have to also change the system and find out why is there so much mistrust and how can we solve that issue? And it will not get solved till every hospital individually, every healthcare worker individually takes responsibility for their patients genuinely tries to do their best. It's a tough job. Yes, but you signed up for it and create some level of transparency so that they can be satisfied that what is happening with them is right and that trust can develop again. Or else no matter how many legal rules and regulations we put in this, doctors will continue to get beaten up. A frustrated person is going to remain a frustrated person. At that level of anger, you're not thinking that if I raise my hand on this guy, I'll go to prison for three years. At that level of frustration, you're just frustrated, you're just angry.
0: Yeah, like, for example, it's not always frustration, you know, sometimes the grief reaction, sometimes it's, it's a billion things that makes anybody become violent towards anybody. I want to say two, three things, though, it feels really horrible to be on this side of the violence. I want to say that in this particular pandemic situation, you know, there's such a big deal is being made out of doctors. See, for sure, we are at the front line. for sure, especially mm-hmm. emergency medicine physicians are dealing with mm-hmm. a lot of uh, risk. But I'll tell Mm -hmm. you, I've seen uh, people Mm -hmm. from other professions go step out of their comfort zone and try and make things work. Supply chain managers,
1: people in warehouses,
0: cops, Mm -hmm.
1: everybody Mm -hmm. is
0: working overtime to figure out a way. So there is, it's not just that, you know, you signed up for a difficult thing. So you need to step up. Everybody is stepping up. It's a national, international crisis. And as a profession itself, we go into this to be able to make a difference I mean, mm-hmm. the end product is that we, whether we go into it for that or not, the end product is that we have a significant impact in our patient's lives. Yeah, we yes. have a, we have the power to to make or break in many ways, not just in terms of life Absolutely. and death, but in just Absolutely. in terms of even fever.
1: How you approach them?
0: Yeah. How and you
1: talk to them itself? Yeah.
0: Exactly. See, I feel that definitely there should be some amount of legal recourse that you should be able to take against, Absolutely. Violence. but like you said, we have to look at what we can do because there's always mm-hmm. something that we can do to make things to, regain the, trust. Yeah. to regain the trust. Yeah. So uh, do you think uh, there are ways to handle that? Like always having a social worker on shift with you to be able to tackle things. That's one. Right. Second thing is, right. Better training for doctors to just talk to patients, explain to patients, relatives that see this is what's happening and we've done this and this is the prognosis of your patient so that they understand what's happening. I think that's something that we are not taught to do. At
1: first year of MBBS, we had a professor in physiology who for some reason was very excited and into teaching about medical ethics and he would take class once in every two weeks. It was, it was enforced upon us. Yeah. And he did that for about six months of our first year. And at that time, when you're in the first year of MBBS, you don't even understand the importance of why is he doing this. And you don't even know what are you talking about? Why are you coming and talking to me about medical ethics and how to talk to a patient where I'm at least two years away from coming in contact with them. And we would always hate, hate going to that class. After that, no one during my MBBS or during my internship taught me how to talk to a patient, how to counsel a patient. It is a very big part of training in UK and US for doctors. In India, it is not, it is not even counted. And I have actually been a victim in quotes of uh, violence against doctors during my post-graduation once and i realized that there was nothing i could have done about it i should have just counseled my patient better but then i did not have that as a part of my training before this Uh, after that during my post-graduation we took steps as to making it a part of our training or as to how to counsel a patient how to talk to a patient and obviously having a medical social worker helps but it has to start from the level of nurses and doctors where they have to be trained During their medical training, this has to be an important part of their training.
0: Yeah, I think that what most people are going to say, because we are being the devil's advocate here, you know, you're right in that most people are going to be saying, how are you saying that it's okay. It's not okay to beat up anybody, not just doctors, anybody. Yeah. But the one time that I got beaten up, looking back at it, Mm. I realized that. We were declaring death in the middle of the emergency department with the father and son standing right next to the patient. It's only after that, that I realized the importance of taking Mm -hmm. them to the counseling room, making them sit down, asking them Mm -hmm. a few questions. Nobody Mm -hmm. taught me how to declare death. And this is was my postgraduate equivalent is when I learned. this. Mm -hmm. So there was like, I didn't even have an idea of the fact that patient counseling can make such a difference. It. You know, it's like for them, it's a life-changing thing that you're telling them. And they are always going to remember that moment when they were told. So it is, and it's absolutely essentially our responsibility to make that moment as Mm -hmm. comfortable for them as possible. Because Mm -hmm. it's already a pretty horrible place to be. So now most people are going to say, we Mm -hmm. don't have time. We're too busy, Mm -hmm. there are too many patients. So for that, Mm -hmm. I feel that we should then put a structure in place. That's why I said something about the social worker. Because if you have right. a social worker, they will say, okay, let's take that patient there. And then from that will come, okay, you will send your resident or one consultant will be able to go there, spend five minutes, mm-hmm. talk to them and then mm-hmm. tell the social worker, okay, you sit with them and let's solve their problems. So that at least they mm-hmm. have feel like there's some system of support around the patients.
1: I understand the training also. Time is always an issue. The volume of work is always an issue. But it's an effort which our generation of doctors, at least for a few years, will have to deal with. There are steps being taken to deal with this. You know, the number of medical seats have increased. The number of postgraduate seats have increased. There will be more doctors. Hopefully the administrations of hospitals will step up and start hiring the actual number of doctors they need rather than just the bare minimum that so that they don't have to pay more and stuff like that. But it will get there. Until it gets there, I, my only reason I'm doing this uh, podcast with you in the write-up that I did that I sent you is to understand that if we do not take this at an individual level, if it doesn't hurt us as an individual level, if it doesn't remind us as to why you're in this field, the system will not improve. It has to start from you.
0: There's something that I read. I was looking up how to increase accountability among healthcare workers and there's the ama journal of ethics has okay. published this was something that was from the editor which was published in july 2007 but i feel that it's as relevant today as it was in 2007 i'll mm-hmm. just read out just a few lines from it it says and he's talking about the 1970s he's saying mm-hmm. because malpractice suits were less common they did not feel obliged to practice the defensive medicine which is so familiar mm-hmm. to doctors today And you know, the US Mm -hmm. has something called HIPAA, right? Health Insurance Mm -hmm. Portability and Accountability Mm -hmm. Act, which is a pain for the doctors. I've heard a lot of people complain about it on Twitter, but it definitely Mm -hmm. makes them more accountable. Mm -hmm. So he's saying today, doctors are less independent, less Mm -hmm. autonomous, more accountable Mm -hmm. to lawyers, insurance companies, and savvy and well-read patients. But even for those sympathetic to the challenges that doctors face, Indeed, even mm. for doctors themselves, it can be hard mm-hmm. to deny that this shift was in some way needed. Doctors are ordinary mm-hmm. people who do all of the things that ordinary people do. They make mistakes, they have weaknesses, they have biases and conflicts of interest. And sometimes mm-hmm. they act in their own best interest than in the best interest of the patient. That
1: is very well said to which I would like to add saying that if we don't want to get there, if we don't want to get, uh, get to the point where doctors are at the mercy of lawyers and the yeah. legal system we yeah. better correct ourselves before it gets to that
0: point yeah we have to do this now that like you said it's it's each doctor with each patient it's like every case right. that you see If you just take out those five extra minutes to just explain to the attenders, the relatives Mm. exactly what is happening and what you are doing, I have seen it make a world of difference in the way patients' relatives interact with you. Even if the patient is dying and you've told them that, listen, this guy is unlikely to survive, sometimes they end up Mm. thanking you at least because you just did
1: it the right way. Yes.
0: So I think that this has to become a very integral part of our undergrad training. For us Absolutely. to be able to change anything. Another thing I really feel like I should say right here is another way to increase healthcare physician accountability or accountability mm-hmm. in the healthcare system is to have more mm-hmm. doctors in positions of authority. Instead of having MBA, an
1: MBA graduate,
0: graduate or somebody who is just in the position not of doctor. authority but not yeah. a doctor, yeah. to encourage doctors to have a buy-in on the board of things. Mm-hmm. Because right, then things will change because he's got a point of view he's got a perspective about what happens on the floor. He knows
1: the he knows the reality on the floor. I think yeah.
0: that though most doctors don't like doing administrative work, we have it to is reach an a,
1: integral part.
0: Yeah, we have to reach a point where it's almost required of doctors of a certain seniority to be right. on in an authority position. So that they have right. a say in what systems are placed, put in place in the hospital because that's what makes a yeah. world of difference.
1: And this has to start in every hospital, be it, a, be it a small clinic, be it a teaching hospital, be it a corporate hospital. We all have to start holding ourselves accountable to what we're doing. Again, yeah. Again, I have to reiterate saying that yes, doctors are doing a great job, yes. They are putting themselves out at risk. I'm not trying to minimize that effort, but I'm saying we can do better. We definitely can do better. And before we get to the point where we are forced to do better by the legal system or by, you know, we get into that whole US system of doctors getting sued left, right and center we better start taking up the responsibility now before we get to that because that yes. is going to be much worse
0: i think what happens is intuitively a lot of physicians again like you said not all physicians some physicians mm-hmm. have started mm-hmm. practicing understandably defensive medicine but that's not yes. solving the issue it's making the issue worse
1: that's making it worse yeah, yes because
0: that that is also leading to some amount of mistrust among patients
1: thing is they feel that if they practice defensive medicine at least they are safe yeah, that's but the what? bigger it's a protective is that mechanism, it's creating, you know? yeah, yeah, it, it is it's a
0: protective mechanism, and I can understand, yeah, it is some
1: other doctor's problem. problem.
0: But that's the thing, there definitely has to be more systems in place, the government has to do something. But I think right. we have reached a point where we have to stop blaming the system for everything and try and look at what we can do. Because if all of exactly. us do something differently, we will end yeah. up changing a whole
1: lot, absolutely.
0: I'm grateful that Dr. Harshiv could spare some of his time and participate in this dialogue that I'm trying to create between doctors, by doctors, and hopefully between doctors and patients as well. I hope some of this resonated with you. And if you disagreed with a few of the things that we've said, do reach out to me at podcast at gmail.com or just DM me on our Instagram page, Gloves Off the Podcast. I'd really love to hear your point of view. I'm sure we could have a conversation and I'd love to have you on this podcast as well. This is the end of episode 5 of our podcast, Gloves Off. See you next time. This is Dr. Gypsy, signing off.